Baltimore, we have such great soccer history and such powerful soccer traditions. A great deal of Baltimore's soccer roots came from Europeans settling into Baltimore since it was a thriving port town with job opportunities. Italians, Germans, Irish, Polish, Greeks, and many other ethnic groups settled into Baltimore and brought soccer along with them. One place, though, has been a little more special than the rest. The influx of immigrants combined with ample parks, fields, and wrapped up with a healthy dose of coaches who invested in neighborhood kids created a perfect storm that defined Baltimore soccer for generations. Of course, we are talking about Highland Town. What's up, folks? We are back, but this time we are not in the basement of a bank. We are safe, however, from the gunfire of West Baltimore and from Colin Kaepernick's workouts. We are live here at the one, the only, DeSantis's in Perry Hall, where it is a mob scene for lunch. They have the best crab pizza on the planet. It is off the chain, and we are off the crossbar. <laughs> Tell them what's up, Miz. I'm excited. I'm really pumped. I'm glad we're not in the basement of a bank today. However, I do feel like I might want to in, in, engage in an adult beverage after the show, of course. We can do that on the show. You know why? Wow. We are not regulated by the FCC in any way, shape, or form or fashion. So we can get completely housed up in here. Anyway, we got a show lined up. Do you know why we're here, Ms.? I'm going to take a wild guess and just say we're going to talk a little bit of history today. We are talking history. Baltimore soccer history. We are talking specifically about Highland Town. Highland Town, the hotbed of Baltimore soccer for generations. You can see the tribute on the wall. If you ever come to DeSantis's, which I say that you must look on the wall and see some of the art, it's all about Highland Town. How are we going to start it off, Miz? What's your go-to dish here at DeSantis's? I just said it. Crab pizza. It is off the charts. I don't know how Richie DeSantis did it, but he has made Old Bay cheese, onions, and, and tomato sauce just heaven on earth. It is the best I've ever had. Plus, you got to try the wings. Unbelievable. Are they from Buffalo or Baltimore? They are definitely from Baltimore, but they can buffalo them up a little bit and get them to be like a losing football team. Here we go, folks. Here's the lineup for today. We are going to do, obviously, our favorite part of the show, but we're also going to have special guest. He's like the mayor of Highland Town. And by the way, Perry Hall has become Highland Town North, I do believe. He is the mayor of Highland Town, Coach Pete Karinji. We will also do, of course, the Patrick Swayze Player of the Week. Gotta have that. Gotta have that. How do you like to open the show, Miz? I like to open it with my, well, this, this show, for, for instance, my second favorite part, which would be the mystery question of the week, weeks, weeks, month, year, month, decade, and, whatever it is. But this question of the week's day, month, is brought to you by none other than Dr. Adam Maddox at Ideal Health Chiropractic. My man, Dr. Adam Maddox. I heard you went to see him. I did, and I'll tell you what. He, he did an excellent job on my pain. It's all gone. But I would say, you know, to anyone that, that's watching, if Adamatix does not fix your pain, you can always come to DeSantis and a few shots later on, it should take care of it. <laughs> well, the only thing, if Adamatix, if Dr. Maddox could get their bar lined up by that, did you do the massage waterbed thing? Well, I was waiting to hear the sound effects. So, so give me some of the things I should have been listening for. When you're laying in the waterbed, it like get, it shoots little water rockets, and it, it and there's like a cushion over it, so you don't get wet, but it's like, 
And then he turned on real fast. It's like, right? This sounds and like asteroids from the 80s. From right. The <laughs> it does. And then they have the gun. They break out this gun. And it's and it, and it like they put it up to your to your traps and it goes like I got that yeah oh my gosh how good is that it's unbelievable and and of course you can't go wrong with the acupuncture and acu acupressure it's unreal it's a backstabber isn't it it is go ahead with it Miz okay man let's uh it's funny you 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 mentioned today before the show you were kind of contemplating which which outfit to wear which it's I didn't want to say anything because it it falls right in line to the uh, mystery question of the week but. Take us back to, you know, 88, 89, Coach Pete Ivner's getting ready to hit the club. You know what I mean? He's feeling good. He's got the, he's got the shot of uh, Jakar back then, right? What's his go-to get-up? What's the go-to get-up? Come on, break it down for me. All right. So 88, 89, I'm a senior in high school, freshman in college. If I'm going out, right? And you want to you reel them in, so you got to make sure you're looking sharp. I had two pairs. Not one. I had two pairs of guest jeans, which okay. fit perfectly because it really accentuated the shape of my behind but gave enough bag in the legs where it looked a little MC Hammer-ish. So not it, quite Sir Mix-a-Lot. Not okay. Sir Mix-a-Lot. I didn't have the Sir Mix-a-Lot thing going. I don't have an apple bottom. But what I got is enough round, and, 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 but, but it had a little bag on the thighs. Then you got to have the guest jean shirt buttoned all the way up with the collar. And you got to wear some sort of, sort of pointed shoe because when you're out there and you're breaking it down, you want to look good. Nice. I mean, that's, that's, that's great. So uh, jackets, any jackets you, you had? In, you know, or it was 88, 89. You had to have a bomber jacket. If you, were not a, if you did not have a bomber jacket, you could not ride with Goose or Maverick. I'm surprised you didn't have the Zubaz Raiders jacket, you know, that everyone had, no? I didn't have Zubaz Raider jacket, but you know what? My best friend Tony Delarose wore Zubaz, the, uh, the, pants? The, the pants with the, they were red, white, and blue because he liked the Buffalo Bills, and they had like the leopard, not the leopard, the tiger stripes. He wore them every day for like complete, like church. He would wear Zubaz. I feel like we've mentioned Buffalo Bills like more time in this show than they get mentioned on the national airwaves in one year. Right? It was 88, 89. They didn't have a football. We didn't have a football team then. They no, were the go-to. That's true. All right. So folks, we'll be right back at Off the Crossbar. Hey, everybody. A while back, I had a lot of problems with my lower back. It started with a muscle called my piriformis. And when that locked up, my lower back locked up. I couldn't coach. I couldn't run. Almost couldn't walk. I went to see Dr. Adam Maddox at Ideal Health Chiropractic, and within three sessions, I'm back on the soccer field. I'm able to run. I'm able to lift weights. I'm able to train. I'm able to compete. And not only is he a sponsor of the show, but he's a really, really good guy. I consider him a friend. Check him out if you have any back difficulties, any back pain, even if it's in your IT band in your leg. My man, Dr. Adam Maddox, is the best in the business. Welcome back to Off the Crossbar. I am the coach Pete Eibner with my main man, the co-coach Adam the Miz Mizell. And as promised, we have two special guests to you for you today. We got Landon Donovan coming in later. And now we have, I think he's like the mayor of Highland Town. Wait till you see you hear this guy's resume. His resume leaves nothing to chance. It is a it's a compilation of just success, success, success at soccer. First of all, he was an All-American and national champion at University of Baltimore. 
Then he goes and takes Calvert Hall, starts winning championships as an assistant coach there, where he goes to Essex Community College and wins 10 regional championships and gets to the national finals twice. Then he gets inducted to the National Junior College Athletic Association Hall of Fame, but only after he accepts the job at UMBC and takes this little nowhere college and puts him into the final four. Impressive. Played professionally for the Washington Diplomats. He once fed an entire army of Spartan soldiers with just a, a barrel full of fish and, and a cup of wine. He has, he's been known to walk on water and juggle a soccer ball. And he, I believe, I'm not quite sure, but I believe he is the guy that developed the cure for MRSA. I've, from what I've heard is that he also saved a family of 12 from a pack of angry wolves. He did and got a cat out of a tree. Let's give a big DeSantis' off the crossbar. Welcome to Coach Pete Karinji. Coach, welcome aboard. You're carrying ones, and I hope you're not going to tell me you were working hard last night. <laughs> oh, there's no problem. No problem. Look at this. Get big money. Again. Coach is always high dollar. Great introduction there. I hope you enjoyed them 20. <laughs> so, Coach, we are here to talk about a topic near and dear to your heart, Highland Town soccer. So, tell us a little bit about how in an area less than 300 acres, so much great soccer could come out of that little area. Well, I think the first word that comes is a passion for the game. Um, growing up, I think we didn't all didn't realize how great it was. But it was really, uh, it was a playground for soccer. You know, we all grew up and watched the older guys, Mr. Tom Caranta, Larry Sorok, all those guys, and they were going to the National Open Cup uh, finals. And as young kids, you would go over to school at. The school at John Booth Field was really the, the mecca of soccer, along with Patterson Park. And you go down there every day, and there was older men down there, and you went and played. There was no age differential. And you were playing with some of the best players in the country. And as the area continued to grow and uh, soccer down there was, was the sport. Almost every day you went down to the school lot and people from all over came. Just like I think, you know, in, in basketball, um, during the era of the Dunbar days, everyone would go down there and play um, soccer. Everyone came down to Holland Town and you to play down Patterson Park, you played over the school lot. And it was just play, train, practice, no organized, not like it is today. Um, and some of the best players in the country uh, we ever produced came out of that little area. And uh, if you look at just that one street alone, across the street, Claremont Street. And right. I think there was a story done on it. Um, really, how many players, it's amazing. It's a small little block, but how many guys that played on the national team um, or was an All-American just grew up and played on the street. It should be, really, if it was today, it would be a national story. Um, but that was years ago, and uh, but it, we were really just blessed to have that kind of environment every day to go down there and just train with the best players. Well, off of Claremont, there were, I think, five players, five guys, um, th over a period of time that made the national team off one street, right? Yeah. yeah. And and three of them were in the same era. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's absurd. And, and like I said, it, it's today it would be a ESPN story. Um, I think we were ahead of our time with soccer. Uh, back then, but it was just it was an unbelievable atmosphere because you go down there every day and we were playing all different sports obviously 
Um, but soccer was the sport. So you'd go down there and you play and you see Ernie Cox down there dribbling the ball and it's Sonny Askew would come up and the next thing you know, Paul Skirty, who was playing professionally, um, would be there and then we'd have a game eight on eight and you know, when you look back on it, it was eight guys that played professional at one time and it was just a pickup game, put the shirts down and we went at it. And then when we were done there, we went into rec center and then you probably went and played softball. So it was, it was something, we did something all day, every day, um, but there were so many great players and, you know, it, it's looking back, it, it really was an amazing story. Why do you think that the concentration was so high of soccer players in that area? Like, do you think it was because of maybe the European influence of the immigrants that kind of moved there? Is that what helped shape it? Definitely. Um, you know, Pompeii was our, our parish. St. Elizabeth was the parish. I think Baltimore soccer was all centered around the, the parishes back then, the Catholic uh, churches. So you had Little Flower, you had St. Elizabeth, you had Holy Rosary, and you grew up and you played for that. You know, you didn't go play for another church. Um, and Pompeii had a lot of the ethnic, the Italians right there who, the, the priests used to come down and organize soccer games. Priests helped sponsor our uniforms when we were eight years old. So it really was the passion of the neighborhood. And when the older guys were playing, the older Italian men, um, it was just natural to gravitate to to go down there and be playing with them. And as I said, there was no age factor. So you always played up when you went on that school lot and you survived, you know, you had to learn how to play pretty quick, but it really was because of the ethnic um, area. And uh, you know, looking back on it, as I said, it was truly amazing. One of the cool things that I got to do to, for this show is research a little bit. And it seems like the guy, the, the one guy everybody says that that's, so to speak, kicked it all off was Larry Sirock. Would you agree with that statement? Larry was Larry legend. I mean, the legend of Larry Sirock. When I was a little kid, that's the person I heard about. Um, and all those guys, um, when they played for 19, in 1958 and they went to the National Open Cup final, that was unheard of. Uh, a neighborhood team playing for the National Open Cup against pro players. And the team came in from L.A. So I was young, really young, but I had always heard about Larry. And that was one of the first things my father like took me to the game to go watch Larry play. So I remember being a really young boy and going there. Um, and with Larry, they were just great athletes. Him, Mr. Tom Caranta, uh, Bobo Sirock, you know, Al Massaroni. These guys were in our neighborhood, they were legends. And they could play softball, they could play baseball at a high level, but they were the soccer team players. So you go over to school a lot and you hear the stories. Um, just as we passed down the stories here in DeSantis about when we played, we always heard the stories from these guys and you were kind of enamored with the legend of Larry. And everyone told us how great Larry was as a goal scorer. And then you realize the field that we practice on was probably the only field in the state of Maryland that had permanent goals. So the mm -hmm. goals were up year round. So we used to go over there every day and just do shooting. You know, now it's all organized, go over and do your shooting drills. Um, and some of the best goal scorers that ever come out of this town and this state um, grew up right there because all you did, not looking back on it, all you did was go there and shoot, shoot. You'd be there an hour talking, joking like we are, ball come, you hit a shot, somebody would jump in goal. Um, just like basketball players sit there and take shots all day, we were shooting goals for an hour, hour and a half, um, corner kicks, just playing and, and enjoying it. Um, and looking back, the goal became natural because you did it almost every day. And it wasn't, like I said, practice. It wasn't something we went away and go, man, I hate doing this. Right. You love doing that. So, uh, you know, all I can, as a list, list of guys that grew up down there that became big time goal scorers. Now, I'm interested in, like, the back in that time, I'm sure the, the, the equipment was scarce, right? So, 
you know, when, when I grew up, it was a little bit different. We had a, a little bit more equipment around, but I can't imagine, like, I'm interested in how is the breakdown as far as, like, who brought the ball, you know what I mean? Or who pumps <laughs> the ball up? Or if this guy's got three of them, we're cracking shots, and you know, they're going all over the place, so who's chasing them and all that? Like, how did that work? We joked around about it. Like, you know, you'd have a ball. I remember going to uh, the first Baltimore Comet game at uh, Memorial Stadium, and a ball went up in the stands, and one of our guys grabbed the ball, and he ran out the stadium. Oh, the, ball <laughs> because the ball was that important. We needed a ball. Right, right, um, right. So th that was – that was a great story, but <laughs> literally, we like I coached. We were talking about the other day, Tommy Caranta, young Tommy, well, um, the older Tommy now. But you know, he played for me with Pompeii, and we used to go to games. And we went to the nationals and did the national finals, and went to Canada and all neighborhood kids. And we'd have two balls. That was it. Make sure you bring the make sure you bring the ball. Uh, <laughs> wow, no cones. There was just go practice, and um, everybody would come. Everybody would walk to the field. You know, no parents, nobody at practice, and everyone would train, and the kids were just totally committed to it, and it was a big deal. You know, and the older guys that went to nationals, and it was almost this culture of success, and it just carried down to from the, each group. So I was young. I was really young coaching, um, but I was coaching these guys, and there was no equipment. There, you know, you get, you get the kids, you take five kids in your car, you have Mr. Tom Caranta take five kids in his car, and my father would take the other five, and we went to the games. And very few parents were there. Um, and we were now traveling all over the country. Wow. And went to Canada for the finals. Um, back then, it was the only time it was an international. You know, you guys go to the finals, and it's single elimination. So right. um, we went all the way to Canada, 13 hours to get there, and uh, lost in the semifinals. But here's the coolest thing about the team he's talking about. Gets to the national finals, right? International finals. And uh, and. There wasn't a kid that drove, had to be driven to practice. They all walked, yeah. right? Wow. And it wasn't even a far walk. Yeah. I mean, that's incredible to me. Uh, we had to go pick up Lombi Vasilikopoulos. He lived in Greektown, which is, is like five minutes away. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> How crazy is that? But, but theoretically, he, he still could have walked. He could have walked. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah he sure. And he did, at times he did, but we used to go pick him up. But literally, it, it, when you think about what you guys go through now, um, it's a totally different world of – just and kids wanting to be there, you know. It wasn't no like, well, he, they're making excuses. They would come, they would train, um, and we trained really, really good down the school lot. And other people we'd be playing. And uh, when it was over, you know, I will see you all Saturday. And you took them to the game, and then you brought them back, and then we go over uh, and have pizza or something like that. There was no social media, and uh, we'll see you on Tuesday for training. And you know, it was just, it was what a great environment. Almost every one of them kids was successful in the game. Um, it's some extent and some of them are now still coaching and, and being involved and uh, you know I look back on that with some fine times because that's what kind of uh, my love for coaching and obviously again getting into Essex and other different things but uh, to have a group of kids from your neighborhood and just really get to the national semifinals against organized teams um, but that's when the start of like St. Louis was winning championships but they were getting all-star teams um, sure and ours was basically a neighborhood team you, as a coach now, with all the success you've had as a coach, and, I mean, we could go on for hours about it, but, like, they, they always say, like, a coach is a, is a stew, and, and the ingredients come from different parts of experience and, and mentors and things like that. Based on how you were developed as a player and as a coach, like, who were some of the names back then in the Highlandtown area that, like, helped shape you as a coach? Well, I think uh – George Barry was one of them. You know, George was a great player. He played for the old Baltimore Bays. He's my cousin. Um, George got me basically to go to Calvert Hall. 
and which helped change my my life from a perspective of meeting Bill Karbovich. Um, but also guys like Paul Skirty. I mean, Paul Skirty was a good friend of mine, and Paul Skirty was playing professionally. We'd go to Memorial Stadium, and he was one of the best players on the field. So here's a guy you're playing over to school out with um, on a Wednesday, and then on Saturday he's playing at Memorial Stadium and scoring a scissors kick goal against the Dynamo Kiev of Russia, and you're going like, eh, it's my buddy. And, uh, and so, so George, Tommy Wall, my brother-in-law. I mean, Tommy, my sister was going out with him. Tommy was a legend as a player back then, and obviously he's done really well with coaching. But Tommy had a big impact on me and, and, and being involved. And Fritz Gardina, Fritz was on the U.S. national team. He was married my cousin. So, I mean, you go to family dinner, and, you know, you had George Barry, who's in the Hall of Fame, Tommy Wall, who's in the Hall of Fame, Fritz Gardina, who's in the Hall of Fame. You had people just there that were really named soccer people. Um, and as a young player, young guy, not that much younger, um, but still, you're in all of these guys because you're 13 and you're reading, hearing about them because they were having success as they were building up. Sure. Um, and then, obviously, when I went to high school, Mr. Karpovich had a big influence. And then Coach Adele at, at um, you know, University of Baltimore was big. And talk about pressure being at that dinner table. Yeah. Man, I better step my game up, right? You don't want to get into the neighborhood, like the, 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 the turkey bowl game with those guys. Yeah, right. And the funny thing about them is, is like George coached Casabianca, Tommy coached St. Elizabeth, and they were basically rivals on the field. Um, they played together, but they were rivals in the Unlimited League. Um, so, yeah, it was your rivals on Sunday, but on Monday, your your family, so. That's crazy. And it, well, you touched on something, um, you know, Dick Adele, right? One of the coolest things I've ever heard. Now, the year was, what, what year? 75. 75. Gets an unbelievable team at University of Baltimore. The team was based of high, with Highland Town guys almost exclusively, right? Well, it was all Baltimore City players. If you were a foreigner, you were from Baltimore County. Um, and that was, that was me. I was a county kid, right? The and they were Dale Roth, Charlie Myers, great players. But that would be the joke. Um, and Dick Adele basically parked Pompeii and uh, picked up like five, six all-metro players and never had to get back in his car. Gino Panacchia, Joe Magidi, Louis Spath, me, Richie DeSantis. Richie played here. Um, you know, it was just amazing. Like, you just park right there and uh, – find, you know, Louis Spath. It was just an amazing, um, and now as a Division One coach, that's unheard of to think you can go one place and come away with that kind of quality players. I mean, every one of them was all state, all metro. Oh, I'm sure. Um, and he came away with that. Well, yeah, now Division One coaches, you're lucky if you get two players out of one state. Yeah. No doubt. Right? Yeah. And they're getting six players off of one street, basically. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. mean, that's that to me says – it's just a testament to how great the level of soccer was coming out of Highland Town in that era. Now, I'm going to get the years mixed up. Uh, I probably will get it wrong. You can elbow me if I do. But I believe it was Essex won the national championship in 74, University of Baltimore in 75, and Loyola College won the national championship in 76. Yeah, you're wrong. And, and 73, St. Elizabeth won the under-19 McGuire Cup. So wow. with all neighborhood. Yeah. When is the last time you've had that run of Baltimore-based teams in college national presence? I don't think ever. Never. Well, I think the, the, the credit that 69, Tom's Produce played in the National McGuire Cup, 70, Casabianca, 71, 72, Casabianca was in the finals. So that's when that stretch of great players coming out. And they didn't have youth soccer because, I mean, they had youth soccer, but they didn't have nationals. 
Um, so you won the state championship, and there were so many. I mean, St. Elizabeth's had great teams, Sonny Askew, Mike Wall, Pete Nataro. You know, it was just it, those guys were incredible down there, and that was all within a walking distance. And then St. Patrick's had uh, some great players, Ray Majeski, Gary Mitowski, Bob Tuma. So you had guys all within proximity you can walk to, um, and eventually as they got a little older, that was not today as it's, you know, one guy from Bethesda, another guy. Um, so it was really basically local players um, that won national championships. And the hunger there for, uh, for being successful and really wanting to be the best and having that pride of we were all from Baltimore, I think that's what carried University of Baltimore over um, because it really was all local guys on one college team and uh, playing against foreign, team, foreign players from all over the country. That's fantastic. And, you know, the, the thing that interests me, because I was a county kid, right, so we would, we would play the, the city teams, but it wasn't until, you know, Dew Burns was more established because with right. the Boston Street indoor place, you didn't know who you were playing. Everyone was just freezing to death and you couldn't get anything done. But um, once they had Dew Burns established and all that, and the fir my first, like, experience playing, like, a city team, and especially Hollandtown, I guess – they were called Chisco, I believe. Yeah. And yeah. that's where I met, like, Craig Mackey and, yeah. right. and those type guys. But that was my first, like, experience playing against, like, the city kids. And, you know, it, they were good, but it wasn't the level that you oh, yeah. that you experienced back then. And I'm sure by then people had kind of moved away. But I'm interested in, like, why do you think that happened? Like, what what pushed people out? Or Well, I think um, the neighborhood was changing. Uh, as we got older, uh, people start you know, getting, obviously, uh, having families and wanting to just branch out to the counties. Um, and, and as it was changing, um, you know, soccer was also expanding. Soccer started there, like I said, when we're talking about in the 70s, that was the area. And as it was starting to go, more, you hear about stories about Columbia starting. Right. Bigger. There was always good soccer out um, northeast Baltimore where the Whitmans and the Reefs and all those guys. There was always good soccer. The Mangione family. They always had great soccer out there. So we always had great soccer in Baltimore, South Baltimore. Um, as, as much as we talk about East Baltimore and Hollandtown, it, soccer was a Baltimore city. It was all over. And, and um, you could go into any one of them areas. So when we played one another, it was wars. Um, and that's why the other thing is funny because now, and I start, start seeing it when Petey, my son, was young, we'd have to drive to Delaware to find a game. Yeah. Right. Um, back then, you know, you played other teams from Baltimore, and they were really good. And it wasn't all-star teams, but there were really good teams um, that could play anywhere in the country. And the mentality that we had as, as Baltimore players was if we can win here in Baltimore, we're going to win anywhere because this was the toughest place here, St. Louis and probably New Jersey, uh, with three of the hotbeds, uh, Philadelphia also. So we always felt like we're going to win. Um, but as it started moving more, people start moving out. Uh, the dynamics, uh, the, the, the neighborhoods start changing. People got older. Um, and, you know, I mean, like he said, he teases about Perry Hall, but a lot of us now moved out here. Sure. Um, and, I, and I, you know, I have great pride in watching what he's done with his ki kids' team, what the union done, what, the, what these club teams have done. You know, Pete with FC USA has been fantastic. Um, so there's a lot of soccer out here in this Perry Hall, uh, White Marsh area, and uh, I'm excited about watching it continue to develop. Yeah, absolutely. So, so your generation trailblazed just with enormous success, right? So uh, I, I, when I was a kid, all I heard was stories about Highland Town, how great it is, Sonny Askew, maybe the best ever. And, and by the way, first time I ever saw that guy touch a ball, blown away. 
blown away. And, and it just I couldn't imagine watching him play at his prime. Talk a little bit about Sonny and the influence he had on the game locally. Well, Sonny was uh, probably one of the best American players to ever come out of uh, this country, uh, skill-wise. And Sonny was, um, you know, it's funny, he did it the old-fashioned way. He went down there and practiced every day. He didn't have a, a trainer. Um, and as coaches, we were lucky to have guys like Tommy Wall, Denny Wilbert, um, up in our area, George Barry, guys who came back and coached. So they knew about the game. And, uh, you know, they, 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 they coach the game, but nothing like it's today. Um, as I said, when I was going back and coaching the, the young kids, uh, you know, you'd have one or two balls. You didn't have the cones. You didn't have the tournaments sure. every yeah. weekend. Um, and it wasn't really a business. It was more of a passion back then. Um, and so when I watched Sonny play and develop, Sonny always had a soccer ball, constantly working on juggling, working on his touch. Um, and he developed, you know, just by playing every day. He had a love for the game. You know, we'd be getting ready to go out at night. And we got a little older, and, you know, you'd ride by the school lot or down by the park, and Sonny's still over there juggling the ball. So he just, you know, soccer was, was uh, his love. And um, it's amazing because when he did get to the diplomats, and I was fortunate in my 78 to, to be with him, and I played with him at the club level, um, you know, to watch him play with the best players in the world and hold his own was a great testament to him, but we also had that pride in that's one of our guys. Sure. Um, and there were so many players at that time from Baltimore that played or signed in the NASL yeah. and, but didn't play. I mean, we probably had more players from Baltimore at that time in Maryland that played in the NASL or signed than anywhere in the country. But a lot of guys would go and go for a year. But Sonny was one of the guys who basically made a living and um, has a great reputation nationally as far as how he played and what he did to the game and uh, you know it's great to be up here when he comes in to have stories about this playing with Johan Cruyff and those guys and they're the best players in the world and he was right there holding his own. I mean that's that to me that's incredible. It is it's awesome. The next group of of Highland Town players and those players were just a little bit older than me. Unbelievably talented guys and you'll know some of these names Keith Merriman right Joe Greco David Kidd and you could go on and on about them. Did, did your generation foster those guys? And yeah. who were some of the main guys that came out of there? Yeah, they were, uh, they were the young kids. And you mentioned Joe Greco grew up over the school lot. Um, All-American, by the way. American. Giuliano Salenza grew up at the school lot. All-American. All Santino Caranta grew up at the school lot. All-American. Nas national team. Uh, you know, that, that Pete Eibner, All-American. That wasn't even, I wasn't even all <laughs> Hamilton. Are you kidding me? <laughs> but, but those, they were young kids when we were playing, so they would be over to school a lot, like we were with Larry Sorok. And as younger players, you know, they're playing against us when they get a chance to, when you put them in the game. Um, and you're just learning, you're experiencing. And that's the best teacher for me. I, I look back and, you know, I'm being a young player and, and being in a, high school and playing against these guys, you know, that play, all play professional or in the national team. And when you're training and you're just playing pickup games every night down the school lot, um, and you're going head to head with them, you walk away and you say, I feel pretty good about how I'm playing. So now when you go into high school and you're playing against other players, you literally feel like, and I felt like that all through college. I just felt like, man, if I'm playing against Denny Witt and he's playing in the NASL and I'm training and I'm doing all right, well, this guy in college is not really somebody who's going to be able to stop me. Um, and that was my mentality. But, and that environment that we grew up, it was a very unbelievably ultra-competitive environment. And he knows I'm probably one of the most competitive people in the world. 
and, and I really do believe it's because I grew up down there and played. You fended for yourself every day, and if you didn't compete, then one, you sat because the next guy came in and played or the next group. Um, it was like pe basketball pickup. You're, you're five against our five, and two teams are waiting. So you wanted to keep playing, and you wanted to walk off the field and go, I could play rather sure. than I'm always sitting on the side. I'm not any good. But I really do believe that that, that area um, and that environment fostered the person I am today, um, good or bad. That, uh, that right there, that, that completely organic, if you will. The, some of the names, Stevie Caranta, he went to Curley, he was an All-American. All-American. You know, Darren Petty, those guys all Fastest played. man in Highland Town. Uh, fastest with, talker, too. With his gold chains on, by the way. The fastest man in Highland Town. With gold chains I think on. All those guys, all those guys, uh, you know, the Spalt brothers, all those kids that grew up down that area. Um, I was fortunate to have all of them at Essex, and we had a run at Essex with them. I mean, yeah, just, for just sure. Fell short of winning a national championship, um, and they were all really good players. Um, probably didn't get the opportunity to play professionally because at that time, then the indoor was coming, and more of them were starting to play indoor than uh, along with outdoor, but. Um, I think some of the clubs at that point, because we were lucky also to have sponsors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, my father was a sponsor. My uncle George Barry was a sponsor for Casabianca. Mr. Tom Caranta was a sponsor. You know, you talk about putting up money nowadays. They sponsored everything, so money wasn't an issue. I yeah. will say, not being, a, you know, not growing up in that in that era or in that location, the, the, some of the stories that I got, you know, later on in life or whatever. But there, there were very few stories that. <clears throat> that like w around your your guys and, and the players that you mentioned and all these things that did not include Tommy's Lounge. Why is that? <laughs> Tommy's Lounge was located right there, right in the heart of it. And uh, obviously when we owned that tavern, um, that was the central spot for soccer. And, you know, it was one of the first places where we had the satellite, the old-fashioned satellite that was on the... Oh, the, nice. So all the Italian men would come over and go to church in the morning at Pompeii, walk across the street, and the place would be packed watching the Italian games in the morning. Wow. That's when, that's the only place you can get it on satellite. You couldn't get it like we do nowadays. So soccer was the, the play, soccer was still the sport. Um, and we advertised, we're the place where soccer fans meet. I mean, Keith Mills and Channel 2 came down and did a, you know, a whole live remote when the World Cup was here. Uh, so there was a lot of, that was the energy. People came all from all over town. Sure. And knew if you went in there, you're gonna see some soccer players that are sitting there that you probably played against. Uh, we also had pictures when we first opened up of all the old University of Baltimore players on my group. Um, so you can go in there and, and once again, you felt more like it was in a, uh, a soccer bar. Right, sure. um, it's like a club. It's like a club, everything, pictures of soccer and everything with soccer, the games. Um, I'm probably there, Tommy Wall's there. It, it, it's like all the people we're talking about, Paul Skirty, everybody. Second home yeah, almost. Sonny Ask, everybody's in that bar. So, uh, you know, you came in there, and, and we were all friends, and we grew up together, and that became the, you know, Cheers was the place that was like our Cheers. And, and, Everybody uh, knows your name, right? <laughs> and, ironically, and ironically, when the National Coaches Convention came, this is a great story, and I probably shouldn't say it on the air, but I'll say it anyway. So National Coaches Convention come, and every year, I was on the board of directors, and every year we went to some real big place, you know, big restaurant, and everybody was kind of stuffy, and, uh, you know, you go there, and you have your dinner, and you, their wives, and, and if it's over, they thanked you all for the convention, and you went back to the place, and it was all very stuffy, and so it's here in Baltimore, and they go, uh, 
what, what do you think? We go to your Tommy Bounds, we heard, and these are like lead coaches all over the country. So yeah, let's do it. So we put them downstairs, um, you know, crab cakes and at the neighborhood. Everybody's there. Like just, just right, more, right, just right. Neighborhood characters are there, <laughs> and uh, you know, legendary neighborhood characters. And the place is packed. So they go downstairs, and you know, we have a big party, a great party, and they're drinking some shots, and it's it's. So it go, it went from a, a group that's always stuffy with their ties. Right, right. So right. by the end, the ties with the wives they, are having it. And, they cut loose. And they absolutely loved it to this day. And the convention is going to be here again in January. They all, they those guys that were, anybody went there, go, hey, can we go to Tommy's? <laughs> <laughs> I go, nah, Tommy's is closed. Oh, man. You bring them to DeSantis now, yeah. right? Yeah. Might be the place. Well, I tell you what, you're having the show here. I, it's packed for if they're all I here to see you, Coach. You I mean, should be able, you, you can do this all around the, the, the area now because if you go live remote like this, this is great. Well, what we're going to do, we're going to keep it at DeSantis. You know why, Coach? Why? Crab pizza. I've never had anything like it here at DeSantis's. Hey, I am the Coach Pete Eidmer. This is co-coach Adam Mizmizel. This is the Coach Pete Karinji. We are off the crossbar, and we'll be right back. I've been ready for three years. I've been denied for three years. We all know why. I have nothing to hide. I want all the MLS owners to stop running because we're ready. I'm ready. I talked to my agent and he told me I'm ready. We're ready. We'll handle any phone call, any tryout, any time. We can't stop saying ready because I am ready. We all know whether I'm ready and I'm ready. That's all I'm saying is that we are ready. So I'm telling the MLS owners to stop running from the truth Stop running from the people. Stop running because we are ready. MLS owners, the ball's in their court. We will let you know if they call, when they call, what they said, and if they left a message. Welcome back to Off the Crossbar. We are here talking Highland Town with Baltimore soccer legend Pete Karinji. We were just talking about maybe like one of the toughest, toughest things you could do is is play in that environment, how competitive it was. And, and I remember going to games as a kid and watching fights, like literal fist fights, where somebody goes to their house and gets a bat because of the intensity of the games. Talk a little bit about that atmosphere. Well, that was uh, one of the, probably the best and the craziest part of, when I was a kid, I'd go down to Patterson Park every Sunday to go watch the fight. Right. which is otherwise known as a soccer game, and it was all ethnic teams. So growing up um, and being in that incredibly environment where it was very competitive, um, and each, it was neighborhood teams, neighbors against neighbors, um, that's, that kind of carried over into everything we did. Patterson was so good in soccer, so when I right. went to Calvert Hall, that became a rivalry with Curley being involved. The Calvert Hall-Curley rivalry started back then because we had guys, um, six of us from East Baltimore went out to Calvert Hall, and we won the first championship, and now we were playing against some of our friends from East Baltimore at Curley. And then that kind of carried over. Patterson won all the time, and they were all our friends. So right. You, so you played with them like you guys did, um, but that carried over in the intensity of Calvert who's better. I mean, you had arguments every night, and um, the games were well attended like it is today. And then I think it really kind of all the guys from Baltimore went to the University of Baltimore, and they were a national power. And then all the guys from Baltimore went to Loyola College. Right. And now that who was the best in the country? And back then, 
even though it was Division Two, Division One, Two, and Three, the All-American teams were all the same. The the rankings were all the same. So if you were ranked nationally as a Division Two school, you, Division One schools were in there. So our team, University of Baltimore, we went to four, three Final Fours, um, beat Maryland, beat University of Virginia. So all the schools that typically today are, are powers, we had beaten. We were one of the best programs in the country, um, and so was Loyola. So when we played each other, and I'm, it's not an exaggeration, 4,000, 5,000 people would sure. be at the game, TV, it was a big event. And it was really friend against friend because we, the guys at Loyola I grew up with, right. um, I played in high school with, I hung out with. Um, and the intensity of the rivalry was so much that Coach Dick Adele, who was a legend in lacrosse, and it was our coach at University of Baltimore, also coached in the Army-Navy game because he coached the Army, uh, Calvert Hall-Loyola game, the Maryland-Hopkins game, had said more than one time to me and other people that one of the most fierce rivalries he's ever been in is the Loyola University Baltimore soccer game. Mm -hmm. So what a every that was the game, and everybody came, and you had sides. So I, I tell Pete a story uh, of our friends, my Johnny Palmier and Mario Scopati. Um, they're all in Loyola. Me and Louis Spath and a couple guys, and we were literally walking to Johnny's house. They're having a little party with all the Loyola guys. We're just going to go over and say hi and how you doing. Didn't let us in. <laughs> can't go in. And they're lifelong friends. Enemy, you're day. enemy. Get out of here. Come in because right? you're University of Baltimore. And lifelong it was, friends. And it was literally yeah. the neighborhood Hollandtown was split between University of Baltimore and Loyola, and uh, it, it was that intense. And you know, there was a fight one game, um, almost a riot. Uh, it, it was just a crazy atmosphere. Um, but looking back, that was the heyday of that two Baltimore area teams, nationally known players that went on to be. Uh, professional players, some of the best players that ever come out of this town. But it was almost the culmination of all the years of growing up, playing one another, and now we're at, all at the same school. Um, Towson was good back then. UMBC was, um, that was Dave Andrzejewski and Steve Zarehuis and those guys. So Baltimore area college soccer was maybe at the pinnacle as far as having so many teams. Um, and then you had Essex had great teams back right. then. So it really was... Uh, and it was a lot of pride and, and a lot of, but a lot of fierce competitive, um, you know, when the game is there or, or it, it was fights, there was, right, it, sure. it, it was, it was, uh, and that's, that's interesting to me, like, because you were in, in a such combative, intense yeah. atmosphere, it kind of just programs you as a player, as a coach. So like nowadays being in the position you are having the success you have, like, it's interesting to me how if you're on the sideline in, you know, Albany somewhere and uh, a kid whacks one of your guys, like, how do you not run on the field? You know, like, it's just, that's well, I, interesting I, to I me. I think, and Pete's heard me say this before, I, I think part of the frustration nowadays is I think some of these, I, 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 I said to my assistant Anthony Adams and Petey, um, I don't ever remember our last game this year meant nothing um, in the sense that, um, we had to play Stony Brook, and we obviously won the game. And I told the players, look, it's a meaningless game, but I, know I don't play or coach meaningless games. I'm here to win the game, and we won. But um, as a player and as a coach, there was very few meaningless games I ever played. Yeah. Very few. And now a lot of kids, you both coach, they'll play in a tournament if you're out of it. or it, So it was meaningless games. And that, that the competitive nature of, man, this game's important, and I'm coming to play, um, we didn't play as many games, but we played more 
fierce because right. the games meant more uh, right. in the sense that nowadays kids will play, even in high school, I mean, we play maybe 16 games. Now they might play 24, 25 games, three games a week. And, it's the, you know, all big deal. And, and so I think now sure. in college I see more and more kids, um, men, that don't have that fire to want to play because basically they're, they might be tired or burnt out on the game rather than that love and that passion that I still have. And the day I don't have it, I won't be coaching. And it's hard to, to kind of ingrain into a player, you know, like you – it's not one of those deals where you show up and perform when the stakes are high, and then when it's the stakes aren't high or there's no real gain in the result, you show up and you know lollygag around for 90 minutes. Hey, you should always you should always play a game. Every time you play a game, you should play a game at a at a standard that you think someone's watching you play, and they're gonna walk away going, man, I really like that guy. Man, that guy. That guy, number nine, he gave it all he had. Or, hey, they didn't win the game, but, man, that guy played well. And I, I think if you have that mentality that you're always going to go out there, then you're going to be a really good player versus I'm going to play good one game or I don't feel like playing. Sure. Uh, when I hear stories of kids saying they don't feel like playing, it just drives me crazy because I, to this day, never had that feeling of going to a game and going, I don't want to be here. So, and, when, and if you have that feeling, and, I, and I'm sure you both – coach kids that are like that because that's more prevalent now um it's really sad to see that's for sure the only time that would ever come on my radar is if it was you know 40 mile an hour winds and 20 below i might be after want to <laughs> sit in the car but yeah. other than that you know all conditions being decent i wanted to play well to show you like that environment that he grew up playing in when i played for coach every single practice was a competition even down so far as the running, like the running, it was always like, a, you know, he had the Olympic day where it was running with skill work and you had to, you know, he divide up into two teams or you'd be playing each other or he'd divide you up into four teams and losers run, winners get a drink. And it, it really changed my life from how I view sport. And, uh, you know, it, it, I just was naive to it when I was in high school. I was never exposed to that everything matters attitude. And, and I mean, that's, that's part of the success. But, you know, you live in Highland Town, you play in that era, you got to grow up in that, you know, in that sure. cauldron, if you will. And, and so we've done that at some of the teams I've coached where they, they lack that, let's call it testicular fortitude to compete we'll throw in the competitive cauldron where we keep scores and you see it guys want to guys want to fight and get right. on, get their name on that top last list you know i'm interested now like as as a coach you know of of a UMBC a division 1 program somewhat local i mean it's not very far away from you know ground zero of what we're talking about here when you see a kid come across your radar and you know like he's a homegrown product or you know, he's been developed here, or you might know his family, or one of those one of those things that in his bio that hits the soft spot. It's like, how do you, as a coach, say, well, you know, he's not quite, but he grew up where I, you know, I know his parents, whatever it is. Like, how do you separate those feelings? Well, it's it's not easy, um, and I, I think probably um, most likely we'll take that kid. Um, we've got burnt on that kid because I knew the parent and uh, grew up with the parent and basically had a conversation that said he may not play, but, well, now he wants to play or he wants to be part of your program, he likes you. 
Um, so it, it, it's very difficult, but I would always lean towards having the player and hopefully that kid develops and has a good experience. So for every kid that we get like that, um, I would say most of them had, had some kind of success and enjoyed it. But there's always that one you get burnt. And, you know, it's ironic that we're in here, but one was a, a parent that came, uh, the kid, uh, you know, I knew the whole time. And, you know, the parent kept saying, ah, he just wants to play for you. He wants to go to UMBC. Well, he right. might not play, might not play, might not play. Never played. And now they come in here, they won't even look at me. So right. That's, that's, it's part of the gig, right? Part of the game. Send yeah. over a crab pizza from DeSantis's. I'm telling you, Miss Morgan, our super producer, will will also testify that it is the best crab pizza on the planet. As soon as the show wraps, guess what I'm getting? The crab you need pizza. to order the pizza now because uh, there's a line to get in here. I'm it amazed is. at that. How I many people this show has brought? They heard you were coming. The coach, coach is no. a draw. No. I mean, it's the coach is a draw. I'm in here a lot now. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so we're going to keep you here, and uh, and and we are going to talk about. Maybe your favorite part of the show. First favorite this year, this week for sure. When Her we favorite. come back, we are off the crossbar. Hey, everybody. This is a Coach Pete Eibner to talk about my company, Fast Forward Training Systems. We develop kids with the ball, make them better soccer players, increase their technical skill, increase their speed of play, and, yes, we also do strength, speed, and agility. We've been in business since 1991. We've gotten over 500 kids to the Division I level in college. We have trained the best in the area. Would love to train you. So let's get out. Let's kick the ball around. Visit the website, www.fastforwardtrainingsystems.com. Welcome back to DeSantis's, folks. We are off the crossbar, and we are in a packed house here in the restaurant. Crab pizzas flying all over the place. Old bay wings, Italian cold cuts that look like baseball bats. They're so big. They are gigantic. I'm telling you, if you can, get to DeSantis's. The food off the charts. I was hungry before I got here, and now smelling all this stuff, I'm starving. Well, I tell you what, we're all eating as soon as we're done here. Richie would be on the show, but uh, I think he's in the back uh, making pizzas. I tell you what, he can sling a pie, brother. So, Coach... We are now at Adam's favorite part of the show. This, this part of the show right here, I think, is one of the most important parts of local soccer coverage. No doubt. Before we tell you what it is, we want to talk a little bit about hairstyles. So you had the buzz cut, the Johnny Unitas in the early days, and <laughs> then, it went, then it went long hippie style. And I've seen you with the hippie style. Yeah, the mustache and the whole nine yards. Coach is blessed. He's a nice head of hair. Great head of hair, Game right? Game show host hair. I mean, I'm it's telling you, it's it's it's. Un, I'm so jealous. You of have that. a hair and makeup person yeah, over I, there. That's I, why. I, I seriously, Miss Morgan, can you do me a favor as a producer and see how much it would cost me to get plugs? Thank you. What is the, what is the uh, there's a there's a company that actually specializes in that hair club for men? No. It's the, the guy who does, I don't know. We'll skip it. We'll skip it, but okay. So anyway, Coach, the 80s hit. All of a sudden, the hair gets a little long in the back, but a little tight up top. Maybe the best look ever. Tell me, who was your favorite mullet of all time? Oh, that's pretty easy for me. I had a guy that played for me at Essex Community College. Um, we got to the national finals, and then he came <laughs> with me to UMBC. 
and his name was Pete Eibner, and he had the perfect mullet. I mean, man. It was spectacular. People. When I you mean, reach he, the perfect mullet, it <laughs> switches to the Kentucky mud flat. <laughs> and I remember having a talk with him about whether he should go play professional soccer because <laughs> of his hair or should he go into comedy. And I think he made the right choice. I went into so now, comedy. Now he's a mixture of both, right? Right. Hey, but I'm telling you, my mullet, Coach, thank you very much for the compliment. My mullet was spectacular, but it is nothing compared to... To the god of all mullets, which is who, Coach? Patrick Swayze. Patrick Swayze. Hinging, you know, based on the, the kind of theme that we've ran through today with the all, you know, the, the number of All-Americans that were mentioned on the show, Coach, be honest, would you put Coach Eibner's mullet <laughs> in that All-American, you know, like, would you put it in that mix or I think not? that's a whole other show, but okay. I really do think that uh, I think Eibner's mullet was legendary was at the time okay. and a lot of people remember that people remember there's a lot of people remember him more for the mullet than his <laughs> play <laughs> on the skills. field okay all right that was prior to him come to Essex at Curly it was more about the mullet at UMBC it was more about the play and the leadership <laughs> um, but at Essex it was a combination of mullet and and that's why I'm, I'm amazed that this is the only soccer show in the country if not in the world where there's a whole segment on hair, it's because of him. Well, yeah. we have nothing left to talk about yeah, except right. the glory days. That's right. Right? So, Patrick Swayze, best mullet of all time. I, I modeled my haircut after Patrick Swayze because he looked great. Coach, would you agree? I think he had a man crush on Patrick Swayze. Because he still had, talks about What is him. Coach's favorite Patrick Swayze movie? Yeah, what is your favorite Patrick Swayze oh, movie? Oh, I've seen your show last week. You don't have to ask me. I, that was easy. Roadhouse? Road, I, don't, I don't watch any Patrick <laughs> He does not know what. <laughs> <laughs> no, man, he was in that, uh, the, no, I don't want to say it. He might, not, he might have not been in that movie. Not Flashdance. Like no. any, anything else is on no. the table except for Flashdance. Let me tell you, if it's not Goodfellas, he yeah. doesn't know it. Right. Is it the Godfather? <laughs> it's not the Godfather. So, all right, there, Coach. Right above you is a picture of Patrick Swayze. Look, yeah, it's a gorgeous mullet, Perfect. is it not? Perfect. So every week we give one player, just one, the Patrick Swayze Player of the Week. And that player will earn the mullet. Coach, who we got this week? Tough choice this week, but apparently uh, Mr. Hayden Lim had himself quite a weekend. Tell yes, us about he did. Uh, I'm fortunate enough to coach this young man. Mm. Uh, phenomenal player. Grew up playing in the FCUSA system, played for us, and he left to go to Baltimore Armor Academy and spent one year at SAC. This year he came back, and uh, he has been on fire. So they were in the National Capital Cup this weekend against Villarreal. He had three goals and an assist in a must-win 5-1 win. And then in the finals against uh, SAC Pre-Academy, hit one of the best free kicks I've seen in a long time. No time left in the first half. We're at 35-minute halves. It's like 34-56. He bends the ball around the near post, upper 90. Kids go bananas. So he is, uh, he is the winner of the Patrick Swayze Player of the Week. Coach, would you like to see it? Want to see it. Let's do All it. All right, you ready? One, two, three, boom! And there we go. He's looking strong. Outstanding. He is looking strong. Miss Morgan, uh, goes, another phenomenal job. Also goes to Calvert Hall and plays for Coach Zinkan. Yes, he does. Goes to Calvert Hall, plays for uh, Coach Rich Zinkan, plays in the midfield, does a great job for them as well. Just a really nice player. 
Spectacular kid. Sounds like a Patrick Swayze selection to me. All, all out, all now, in. Now, what does he get for winning this? He gets that mullet, and he gets, oh, the, well, he gets the mullet. <laughs> he gets to show every lady that he meets that he has the mullet. If he plays his cards right, he might be able to squeeze in a high five from Coach uh, Pete. That maybe. Well, back in the day when you and your mullet. Oh, I can't talk about when you and your mullet. <laughs> <laughs> and the guest shirt, you know. Yeah, the, the guest shirt. With he had the tank top. Oh, man. It was a good look. Big, big gold chain with the cross. Is there a picture anywhere in circulation oh, yeah. of the guest jeans and I, the shirt? I tell you what. For this, I will bring back the picture, and we're going to throw it up right there. Wow. It's <laughs> a good look, right? I love that. That is a good look. All right, folks, thanks for sticking with us. Thanks for coming to DeSantis' is with us. Special thanks to Coach Pete Karinji. Thank you Thank for you having coach. me. Great Thank show. You so much. Coach, Keep up the good work, both of you. Thanks for all the insight in the Highland Town and, and, and all, the, all the good things about it, man. It's phenomenal stuff. Coach, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. We are off the crossbar.